I wanted us to think about a couple things here for a minute. I wanted you to listen to a few of the news headlines over the past several weeks. So here are a few of the news headlines. Rescuers deploy, homes collapse amid flooding in cyclone-hit Mozambique. Rescuers race to find survivors after Philippine quake kills 16. The latest, rescuers reach stranded snowmobilers in Wyoming. And then finally, one near to us, storm exits Sonoma County with rescues receding floodwaters and road closures in the wake. Notice the common theme? Rescue. Rescue. And the reality is that from people from everywhere, whether it be Mozambique, Africa, or Santa Rosa, California, or anywhere else, people are in need of rescue. In fact, in the U.S., we kind of live in this 911 culture. According to NINA, which is the 911 Association, an estimated 240 million calls are made to 911 each year in the U.S. The truth is, is that many of us don't even remember a time when the 911 system wasn't available to us. There are some who do. And help wasn't minutes away. Help was at the nearest hospital, which may have been miles and hours away. But the truth is, is that this morning we're going to return to our series in 1 Samuel. And we're going to see a rescuer who's not limited to man's resources. And while we're grateful for those who put themselves in harm's way to be rescuers for us in this life, we're going to see a rescuer who remains with us even after the sirens have died down and brings hope in the midst of the reality and sometimes difficulty of the remaining situation. So let's pray together as we start this morning. Lord God, as we look at your scripture this morning, as we look at your word, we pray that we might rejoice in you as the deliverer. God, may our hearts be melded with yours. Lord God, may you remove distractions, remove Schemes of the enemy even. And Lord, may you and your truth be paramount to us now. May we see with your eyes. May we hear with your ears. May we have open hearts to your word this morning. And Lord, may we walk in boldness with you. Lord God, grant us the humility to see and to hear. Grant us the humility to confess where we need to confess. Grant us the humility to submit ourselves completely to you as our sole and true deliverer. And we ask this in your name. Amen. So this morning as we look at the text, because of the length of the text, we're going to be in 1 Samuel 18 and 19. We're not going to stand and read the scripture together. I'll be reading the passage throughout the message this morning. And so we'll be kind of moving into this a little bit differently than normal in terms of, of, of looking at it, reading the passage together. And so I want to encourage you this morning as we look at 1 Samuel 18, 1 through 19, 24, which is the totality of 18 and 19, to, to follow along in your Bibles. And if you don't have one, there are some back in the lobby if you don't own one, feel free to take one from the lobby. Keep that with you. But we want to be looking at God's Word together this morning. And at the heart of this passage, at the heart of these two specific sections of Scripture, is the fact that God's deliverance is our sustaining hope in all circumstances as His people. God's deliverance is our sustaining hope in all circumstances as his people. In this passage, what is it that God is pointing us towards? And it is to the fact that he is our sustaining hope in all circumstances. Now, if you remember, 
Before we started our Easter series in Romans 6, Ben had shared that David had gone into battle, was the only one as a young boy, came alongside, and when they were looking for somebody to defeat the giant, David was willing to go, and David defeated the giant. He defeated Goliath. And if you recall, David had defeated the giant, that David was taking on the glory of God, that he was fighting for the glory of God, and what we saw was this young man, David, whose desire was for God. But more than that, his desire was for God and his glory. And we've seen that David has already been anointed as king, that Saul, who is currently king, had lost his kingship because he had turned against God. And he was told by Samuel that there would be a new king that would raise up and take his place. And that king was David. But that time has yet still to come. Even though David has been anointed king, Saul is serving as king. And David remains in submission to Saul. And so in this passage, in verse 18, it begins this way. It says, As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants." So they're heading back from the battlefield. And as soon as David had answered simply that he was the son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, the son of Saul, Jonathan, his soul was knit together with David. That terminology means that they had the same heart. David's heart was for God. Jonathan's heart was for God. Saul, as we've seen historically, as we saw earlier in previous messages, Saul himself was a man who was rebelling against God. In fact, he was a man who was trusting in this kind of religious process, but not in God. And there was an attempt that if he could invoke the religious practices, that in some way God would bless that. And yet what God wanted was Saul's heart. Well, Jonathan, Saul's son, his heart is for God. And his heart is knit, his soul is knit to David's. Jonathan recognizes that David is the true king. The one to come, the one to replace his father. And it says here in verse 3, Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul, and Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David. Now here's what it's saying. David is now living with Saul and with Jonathan. He's living in their presence. Jonathan is the heir to the throne. He is the one that is supposed to succeed Saul. And Jonathan does something unique here. Knowing that God is at work within David after watching David slay the Goliath. And their hearts have been knit together now because Jonathan's desire is for God and David's desire is for God. And for God's will... What ends up happening? Jonathan takes off his robe and he gives it to David. Now, this is important 
Because when a king or royalty laid down their robe and gave it down, it meant that they were abdicating the throne. It meant to say this. What he was saying is, David, you are the true king. You are the king that has come. I have no right to this throne, but you do. In fact, he goes farther and he lays down his armor and his weapon and his belt. This is a sign of submission, of surrender. Because the only time you laid down your weapon and your belt was when you were surrendering. So Jonathan gives to David what seemingly was Jonathan's, his right, his right to the throne. Jonathan recognizes that David is to take the throne and he gives up his right. He submits his right to God for the sake of God. He submits knowing that David is now the anointed king, the king to come, and that Jonathan will not be following in the line to take over the throne, but it will be David that takes over the throne. And he postures himself in a place of submission because he loves David, but because his heart is knit to David's in God, and because Jonathan's heart is for God. And so what we see here is this beginning of a laying down of right to follow God. It says here that the reality was that David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. So that Saul sent him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So David was having success. So Jonathan lays down his rights. David is experiencing the success. Now the word here that's actually used for success is a a form of the word sakal. And it literally refers back to the promises that were given at the Sinai Covenant. The point here is what they're making is, is that The same God that is appointing David as king is the same God that had given the promises to the nation of the Hebrews and that he could be trusted and that his appointment could be trusted. S.G. DeGraff puts it this way. He says, this deed on the part of Jonathan was an act of faith. Only faith makes us willing to be lesser. Faith causes us to surrender the rights we pretend to have over against the Christ who is truly Israel's king. And so what's set for us this morning is this laying down of rights and then this picture of a deliverer who comes in and delivers David over and over again for his purposes. And Jonathan gets to be a part of it because he has submitted himself to God. He has laid down his rights for the sake of God's will. He's laid down his rights for the sake of God's will. See, in our culture, that laying down of rights, we're such a right-centered culture. You can't take that away from me. I have a right to that. It's difficult to think about that. That we lay down our rights for Christ. Remember that Jesus was never a defender of his own rights. He was only a defender of others. He went to the cross for us. He had every right in the world to say, I am righteous. Do not put me on this cross and I will not die for you. And he chose not to. He chose to lay down his rights. In the same way, Christ has called us to the same thing. And the way that we experience this part of God's deliverance is we lay those things down as well. 
And so Jonathan becomes a part of God's plan in the deliverance of David rather than an onlooker, simply a witness. And so what we see in this text then are four sustaining aspects of God's deliverance. In verse 6, it says this, and we're going to read here through verse 16. It says, As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the woman came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David is ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. So the first thing that we see here are that the schemes of the enemy are going to be no match for God's favor or grace. The schemes of the enemy are going to be no match for God's favor or grace. You see, there's something else that takes place here. It wasn't simply that Saul had his eye on David. He wasn't simply watching him to just look at him. Right? This passage is implying that what he's got is eyes on him to destroy him. Now, picture that for a moment. This king is now going to work to destroy his greatest warrior. The one who has brought greatest victory. Now, I don't know about you guys, but that's terrifying to me. I woke up this morning with a mouse in our kitchen, in a mouse trap, and I still jumped when I saw it. Right? A king who is out to get you, who has shown instability, is coming for you. But here is an aspect of God's deliverance that we see. That the schemes of the enemy are no match for God's favor and grace. There's two specific types of schemes we see here. The first is direct and personal. Notice what it says. It says, The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. And as he did, day by day, Saul had a spear in his hand. And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. goes on and it says, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but it departed from Saul. Now this was a personal attack. A personal attack. I think sometimes we can feel like, gosh, why in the world would God allow attacks to feel so desperately personal to us? The schemes of the enemy are no match for God's favor and grace, even those that are personal in nature. Even those that are direct in nature. It tells us that Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Why are people responding the way they're responding? It's because they're responding because God is not present in their life. John 15, 18 through 21 tells us, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things that they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. The truth is, is that God is a deliverer and a vindicator. God knows that there are going to be attacks and trials that feel intensely personal. 
It could be an attack where there's accusation made against you, or it could be that you're wrestling with disease and your body is directly affected by it. See, some of the schemes of the enemy are intensely personal, and they are direct. And when you see that, you can know that there's still no match for God's favor and grace. Now notice what it says here. It says in verse 14, not only did David evade him twice when he threw the spears, but it says that then Saul removed him from his presence and David had success in all his undertakings for the Lord was with him. This is a picture of God's deliverance. Saul comes in, throws the spear at him twice. He evades him twice. And then God's coming back and he goes, listen, not only am I going to show that you were, got you out of that mess, but I'm going to continue to show that I'm with you by continuing to give you even greater success. The point here is that God's favor wins. God's grace wins. His grace is completely sufficient for what we need. I remember years ago, being in a ministry situation where, as a pastoral staff, we were attacked on a specific issue. And I remember it was deeply personal. It was by a person that I knew well. And there were a number of us that were, that were hurt by this, that were basically pointed out that these accusations were flown and they were not true. And I remember everything inside of me wanted to just fight back and look at him and say, you are such a liar and I can prove it to you. I'll show you. And I remember a missionary who was home on furlough from Bosnia. And I remember him walking into my office and he looked me right in the eyes as we were sitting there and I was pretty down, to be quite frank. And he looked at me and he said, Tim, remember you are not your vindicator. God is your vindicator. And he will do it in time if you remain faithful to him, but let him do it, right? David, right here, Guess what he does? Does he turn around and look to kill the king? No, he still submits to the king. He still honors the position of the king and he goes to battle. David could have fought his way out of this and yet he chose not to, to honor the Lord. The second form of scheme that we see here is in verses 17 through 25 and it's a scheme that's both passive and aggressive. In verse 17, it says this, Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter Merib. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against And David said to Saul, Who am I? And who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at that time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel the Maholathite for a wife. Now Saul's daughter, Michal, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. And Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Do you see the theme? He's giving his daughter so that the hand of the Philistines would be against him. How so? Well, his call is this. It says, And Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David in private and say, Behold, the king has delight in you and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke those words in the ears of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him thus, and so did David speak. Then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, 
The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. His plan was to give him a daughter so that he could exact a bride price, both for Merib and Michal, that required him to go into battle against the Philistines so that he might be killed by the Philistines. Now here's the crazy part. He just watched David kill the giant, the one Philistine that nobody else could kill. And yet Saul's looking at it going, you know what? Hey, let's give it a shot. And when it doesn't work once, let's try it a second time. We need to recognize that the schemes of the enemy... And this is not to mock the enemy because we don't ever see Christ mock the enemy. But it is to say that the enemy is limited in his creativity as well. And it is to say that his methods are often very similar. And there are times that we're surprised by those methods, but there are times where we can see those schemes And the question is, is when we're faced with those schemes against us, do we grow as we deal with them from each time to time? Or do we react the same way? Think about that for a moment. When trials come into your life, is your first point of reference to become angry and frustrated? Like a child not getting its way? Or do you mature as you experience more trials, realizing that this is not any longer about me, but it's about God and His will and His deliverance? Do the trials in my life build confidence and a growing peace rather than further despair and anger? See, David experienced this. In fact, David went and exacted exactly what the king required of him, which was to be a valiant warrior for Merib. And when the time came for her to be given to him as his wife, Saul gave him to another man. What did David do? Did David leave? No. Because David knew where he was supposed to be. And the Lord was with him. And so once again, he entered into it. And this time, he went into it valiantly again. And notice what happens here. It's the best part of the story that I think goes unnoticed because it's a small little detail. But it says that Saul required of him a hundred foreskins. He brings back 200. It says that David actually brings back 200 This was another way that God was bringing favor and his grace saying, listen, I'm completely and fully sufficient. Saul, you have turned your back on me. But because David is with me, I'm going to show you that what you think is a limitation, I'm going to show you is just a mere hurdle for me. So Saul returns Or excuse me, David returns. And it says here that Saul saw and knew that that the Lord was with David in verse 28 and that Michal saw his daughter loved him. It says that Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Wow. Think about that for a minute. Some of you feel like you have a bad relationship with your in-laws. Hopefully, they're not looking to kill you constantly. Right? David knows this about Saul. Notice David's position throughout this. When he's asked to be the son-in-law of the king, he says twice, He first says this, Who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? In verse 18. And then he goes on 
in verse 23, and it says, And Saul's servant spoke those words in the ears of David, and David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become this king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? In the midst of this scheme, David remained humble. Remained humble. Whenever you're experiencing trials, do you ever go through those periods where you feel like, come on, give me a break. I deserve this. It's a great thing to remember when we hear those words, I deserve this, that those are positions of pride in our life. Because the only thing that we deserve is eternal separation from God. But in God's grace and mercy through the work of the cross, we are granted life. And that's what God has given us. And so when we look at the schemes of the enemy and we see that God's favor is no match, that he can overpower them, it allows us to walk in humility regardless of the outcome. It frees us to still honor those even if we want to respond in anger, lash out, or even vengeance. David's response here is one, this humility. The second aspect of God's grace here, or of God's deliverance here then, is that the truth is able to soften hardened hearts. The truth is able to be softened, excuse me, is able to soften hardened hearts. Looking at verse 1 here of 19, it says, And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why will you then still, or why will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? See, Saul's clear desire is to murder David. He's not only now exacting schemes and directly attacking him, but he's going and enlisting others to help him. What an island experience, huh? An experience where you're sitting by yourself wondering who you can trust. And yet David is walking in confidence with God. Isn't it interesting that the emphasis here is on God's deliverance and on the hatred of Saul? Can't we feel overwhelmed by our circumstances, wondering if God is present or near? And doesn't this text help us see That God is right there working it through. I wonder sometimes if Saul's family, if those that were around him, who saw him with this harmful spirit at work, wondered if there was anything that could penetrate his heart. And yet Jonathan says, listen, You just gave me your plan to kill Saul. I mean, to kill uh, David. You just told me of the plan that you had, and now I'm coming to you, and I'm going to plead on behalf of David's life. And what is he confronted with? He is confronted with the truth. See, an aspect of God's deliverance is that the truth can soften even the hardest of hearts. It says here in verse 4 and 5, Let not the king sin against his servant David. But then the shocker in this in verse 6, 
comes when it says, And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. Whoa, where did that come from? The man that's throwing spears, the man that's giving his daughters, he'll do anything to have David killed. He's enlisted others, and now the truth has been spoken to him, and God uses that truth to soften Saul's heart. What a great reminder that we need the truth in our life, but when we're walking through these situations, we need the truth spoken to us, and we need to speak it to others. Zechariah 8, 16 through 17. And I just want to encourage you to write that passage down. Zechariah 8, 16 through 17. And it simply says this. It says, these are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. I think sometimes we can feel like the truth isn't powerful enough. But God's truth is. When we're in trial, when we're under attack, God's truth can still soften the hardest of hearts. I shared with you guys back at the early March of a friend that Elisa and I have together that had gone through cancer and had been witnessing to doctors. And she was witnessing to doctors that these doctors were coming to the Lord and that they were encouraged because after four years of having this terminal cancer that has no known cure, that they were just encouraged because she was having an upswing. And so they had sent her to Texas, and there were doctors that were actually, she got the opportunity to share with, and the team of doctors actually began, one by one, responding to the gospel of Christ. The beginning of April, we got word that what was impossible occurred. Not only was she on the upswing, but when they did the PET scans, the cancer was completely gone. More than that, it was as if her body had never had it. In the midst of that, one of the doctors, the the one that they describe remaining in Seattle that had not come to Christ was meeting with the other two doctors and meeting with her. And she felt just led to share the gospel with this doctor. And this doctor ended up receiving Christ. Now, God does not promise us healing. But God does promise that he will work through our faithfulness. And in this case, he used that healing to point them to the fact of the reality of who God is. And the sharing of truth in the boldness of truth cut through the hardness of heart. We need to remember that God has a purpose and he is delivering us and his deliverance is not always the way that we picture it but the deliverance that we have confidence in is that Christ has died for us that he has set us free from sins for all those who repent and believe and he will restore us again when he returns The deliverance that we have is the confidence that God is working through our trials and through our attacks to reveal his glory and to fulfill his purposes. The third aspect of his deliverance is that covenant relationship is a source of help and protection. Covenant relationship is a source of help and protection. 
Throughout the scriptures, covenants are used not only as a source of promise, but also as a means of help and protection. Notice what happens here. McCall, the daughter of Saul, actually is loyal to her husband. It says in verse 11, Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning. But McCall, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So McCall let David down through the window and he fled away and escaped. It goes on to say that McCall came up with this scheme, this plan to deceive her father. And it even goes on to say that when asked why she lied to him, she actually lies and said, well, David, David was going to kill me if not. If we land there, we're probably landing in the wrong spot. The point of that that we're to understand in that text is this. McCall was responding to her husband and the covenant relationship had a desire to protect him because of her love for him. The deceitfulness to her father, the deceitfulness about who David is, is really not what we're getting at. It's not the point that's had. What it's pointing out is the severity of Saul, that if she had said, I did it to support him, she would have been killed. McCall was not at the same place that David was. And so it's important that we understand that we don't land there, but that we land with a greater picture of what was taking place, which was that in this covenant relationship, priority was given to that relationship. And that covenant is actually a means, a source of help and protection. In 1 Corinthians 7, 5, for example, of the marriage bed, it says, Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. There's a great example of the way the marriage covenant protects the purity of those who are engaged in that covenant. How about Hebrews 10, which tells us not to neglect the gathering so that we might consider how to stir one another to love and good works, as well as to encourage one another, the covenant that we have with his church and his people. See, covenants are designed not simply for the fulfillment of the promise, but to help and protect his people. One of the reasons that we covenant together as a church is not so that there's some lording control over people. It's because we care. We care for one another, and we're committed to what is best for your soul. And that's what we're committing with one another to. And the reason we hold to those covenants and don't just throw them away and just say, well, it's just a piece of paper, is because those covenants are designed to protect you against the enemy and the work of the enemy. Those covenants are designed to help us grow in Christ and in strength and experience God's grace in powerful ways. Because God has made us a covenant people through the work of Jesus Christ and his blood, of which we'll celebrate in a few moments in communion. Practically speaking, the covenant with David, Jonathan's covenant of love and the beginning of chapter 18 and McCall's marriage covenant of love leads them to reject the murderous authority in their lives and binds them to David, the true king of Israel. You see, when we enter into covenant with Christ, what we're saying is, I don't want my old life anymore. I want the newness of Jesus. I want the restoration of Jesus. I want the rest of Jesus. So you can't have God's deliverance apart from Jesus because Jesus is God's means of deliverance for us. He is the one He is the one 
It is through his life that we have new life. The fourth and final aspect, and we'll wrap this up here, is that the will of God is preserved through his spirit. The will of God is preserved through his spirit. So the first aspect is that schemes of the beginning are no match for God's favor and grace. The second is that truth can soften the hardest of heart. The third is that covenant relationship is a source of help and protection, of which often in our trials and struggles we tend to isolate ourselves rather than run into the arms of others. And yet God calls us to run into the body of his bride, his church, and run into his arms. And so this final one of the will of God preserved through his spirit is simply this. The end of this passage, David flees and he escapes to Samuel. And it says that David then sends, excuse me, that Saul sends messengers to chase after David. And as they go, as they come into town, they enter. And it says that they witness Samuel standing his head over them, and the Spirit of God comes upon them, and they begin to prophesy. And Saul gets word of it, and he says, listen, I don't know about those yucks, but I'm sending you guys to go, because those guys now, all of a sudden, something's happened to them, and now I'm sending you. And he gets word that they're doing the same thing. And so Saul decides, I'm going to go myself. And isn't it bizarre, this man who has had a harmful spirit overcome him, all of a sudden, the Spirit of God overcomes him, and he begins prophesying. To the point that it says here at the end in verse 24, and he too stripped off his clothes and he too prophesied before Samuel and laid naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? This was not saying that Saul had a change of heart. What's happening in this is God is preserving the position of king. He is preserving his kingship and what is to come. He is preserving his will. Amazingly, God does not want this position of his king being dishonored. And so now what is in public? The Spirit of God comes across Saul and he prophesies. But he does not prophesy because he is necessarily submitting to God. He is prophesying because God is now preserving what is to come. His will. The honor of his kingship and the position of his kingship. You see, God is the one who fulfills his will. And he does it in ways that we can often not understand or even imagine. Philippians 1.6 says this. And I think this helps us grab hold of what's taking place. It says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Nothing will thwart God's plan. That is a confidence that we have about his deliverance, that nothing will thwart his plan. So God's call for us is really one of a real question. Do we desire to be a part of what God is doing? Or do we want to be onlookers, standing on the outside, watching? You see, in verse 9 of chapter 2 of Philippians, it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God was preserving His position. God was preserving his kingship. God is the one who fulfills his will. And it's through the work of his spirit that his will is done. This morning as we enter into communion, may we honestly look at at our understanding of God's deliverance 
and ask ourselves, how have we been responding? When trial comes, when attack comes, are we coming to a place like David where we're walking in humility? Not with a spirit of expectation and entitlement, but with a a spirit of hope and honestly, a spirit of joy. Are we dealing with those things in the power of the truth? And are we confronting in the power of the truth? And are we isolating? Or are we running into the arms of Christ's bride? Recognizing that God has given us covenant relationship to both help and protect us. Knowing that God did not design us to live alone, but to live in the community of his church. And then finally, knowing that I don't have to fear, because even if my life is taken, there's not one day added nor one day taken away that God did not intend. That God will bring forth his purposes through us, through one another, and into his world because he is the sovereign God who can only deliver. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we come to take communion this morning, Our desire is that you would show us the areas of our life where we're finding strength in our own sufficiency. God, may this be the time for us to just settle our hearts before you and to hear those things, God, that you are desperately trying to remind us of as the deliverer, the one true deliverer. Lord, as we take communion this morning, may we just reflect on how you have delivered us from sin through the work of the cross, through the shed blood which grants forgiveness, And how you have entered into a new covenant with us through the work on the cross. That you will never leave or forsake us. And you have promised us that. And so may we embrace the totality of what you've given through the work of the cross. The forgiveness of sin. The blessing of your bride. And the blessing of being a part of your bride. Thank you, Lord, for your spirit, for melding our hearts together in oneness through you. And we ask this in your name. Amen.